We're coming close to Palm Sunday. And as I've told you, we're doing things a little bit different around here this year. We're going to spend three weeks on the crucifixion of Jesus. It's not a very popular thing, and I, I, I understand why, because it's not a fun thing to talk about. And so what's really going to be unusual is Palm Sunday. We're going to have a Palm Sunday parade. The palms are on order. The kids are going to get them. You're going to get them. We're going to sing and we're going to celebrate just like that Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And then we're going to talk about Jesus' death on the cross. All in one service. And, and the reason is, is we just don't talk about the actual death of Jesus very often. And so this year we're going to do it over three Sundays. And today, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John 19. We're going to continue on there. I would invite you to join us, but why are we doing that? Because the celebration of Resurrection Sunday really doesn't mean anything if you don't understand why it is that it is so important and significant. So we're going to spend some time, some difficult time. It's going to be hard to talk about and it's going to be hard for you to listen to. But we need to do that so that we understand when we get to that celebration, we can really appreciate that celebration for what it is. So we're going to talk about history. We're maybe going to challenge some things that you thought you knew. I'm hoping that you'll open your heart, maybe in a new way, to who Jesus is and what He did for you. And because of the truth that we're going to look at in the Bible, you may find that you have some healing in store that you maybe didn't even know that you needed. We talk Resurrection Sunday around here and. And eight and a half years ago, we did that the first time with our first Sunday, our first Resurrection Sunday. And we got some funny looks and some stares and some, why do you do that? It's Easter. Well, my question to you is, what does Easter mean? doesn't. It has no meaning in our, our culture at all. Resurrection Sunday means that somebody was resurrected. Who is the somebody? Jesus. So we call Resurrection Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, not Easter around here. Why? Because it's a clear explanation of what it is that we're celebrating. But before we get there, we've got to spend some time with Jesus' death. So if you've got your Bibles, John 19, we're going to start in verse 16. So He, Pilate, delivered Him, Jesus, over to them, the soldiers, to be crucified. He delivered Him over to them to be crucified. Last week we looked at how Pilate completely wimped out. He had the opportunity. He actually believed that Jesus was innocent. He said, I find no guilt in Him. But rather than doing what he alone could do, which was to release Jesus, he was afraid because of his political power and the fact that people might rise up against him and Rome would take it away from him. He instead turns Jesus over to be crucified. He hands Him over to the men who would carry out the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when we look at history, it would be about another 40 years before Rome had a full army in this part of the world. They had people. They had some soldiers. They had some officers. They had a presence because they were in power and they needed to keep things in order. But when the Bible says that Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, we know that they were non-Jewish Soldiers that he was handed over to, and we assume that they were all Roman, but realistically that probably wasn't entirely the case. At least some of the guys that Rome employed to keep the peace and to maintain the law were probably local guys, local tough guys or mercenaries that they brought into the army and paid a salary to just do the work of Rome so that they didn't have to spare the soldiers for the real areas of conflict. There's a good chance 
that a lot of those guys were Samaritans. Because they, they would have had something against the Jewish people and they would have been willing to work for Rome to help keep the peace in a Jewish area. And so it would make sense that at least some of those men would have been Samaritans. It adds a, a pretty interesting twist to history. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, and so I'm not... Please make it clear. I'm, I'm not telling you this is what the Bible says. I'm looking at history going on around the Bible. It makes it a pretty interesting thing when you look at the fact that Jesus was accused by His own people. He was accused by the religious leaders, and the only charge that they brought against Him was He's doing evil stuff. That's all they had to say. He was brought before a guy named Pilate who found him innocent. The guy who was in charge of ruling the area for Rome says, I found nothing wrong with him at all. And he's handed over to be put to death by foreigners who very possibly might have been his neighbors. When you add that idea that there's a strong possibility that some of these guys were Samaritans, it puts a lot more significance on those parts of the New Testament where Jesus spent time traveling through and talking to the Samaritan people. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? Disciples couldn't for the life of them understand why they went out of their way to go through Samaria, a country and people that they avoided, a region that they avoided completely, to talk to this woman, which was unheard of, and yet Jesus did. And how about the passage about the good Samaritan? Nobody considered Samaritans good. Clearly Jesus had compassion and a compassionate heart for the people of Samaria. And I wonder if it was because he knew that when it came to the end of his life that they would be a part of the people who ultimately put the nails in his hands and feet. So they, whoever they were, took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of, the, of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So here we've got to take a look at what the Bible really says, not what history says or maybe what it is you were taught in Sunday school, and look at the crucifixion in a little bit more detail rather than just to skim over these words because it's not fun to think about or to talk about. Here's what really happened. Jesus has just been flogged. We talked about that last week. They've used this thing that's like a whip to literally tear the muscles from the bones of the skeleton. He's lost a tremendous amount of blood. He's physically and emotionally exhausted. They're in the desert. It's hot. He's had a crown of thorns placed on his head, none too gently, which means he's now bleeding from his skull as well. He's bleeding from open wounds on his back and sides. And they take the cross beam. It's called a patibulum. They take the cross beam of the cross and they put it on his shoulders. And this wasn't nice and soft and wrapped in cloth. It was rough cut timber. They put it on his shoulders because, number one, they didn't want to have to carry it. Number two, it was one more way to humiliate a man who was about to die that he had to carry the means of his own execution to the place that he would be crucified. Where did they go? To a place called Golgotha, the place of a skull been a lot of speculation about where that place was, what it means, and, and what it doesn't mean. Well, it's 2,000 years later, and no one is really entirely sure. 
lot of scholars say that Golgotha refers to the place where the Romans carried out executions outside Jerusalem and for the folks that didn't have family or friends to take care of them or bury them, the, the bones and the bodies were just left and there was a group of skulls on the top of this hill. But the Bible doesn't say Golgotha in the plural. It says Golgotha, the place of a skull. One. It seems that that wasn't the case at all. There's also a couple of problems with that theory. The first of all, it's singular. It isn't plural. And the Bible doesn't make mistakes like that. The second one is that the Romans didn't have a place that they carried out executions. They had an interesting way of doing it because remember, it's all about exerting political power and might, humiliating the people who were crucified and frightening everybody else. And so what the Romans would do is that they would crucify men on the streets and the intersections leading out of and into town where there was the most foot traffic. Because then the people would walk by and they would realize this is what happens if you cross Caesar. If you get the wild idea of trying to do anything to the Roman government, that's where you're going to end up. And so as people walked into and walked out of town, they would see the result of the torture and death of anyone who dared to challenge Caesar. So the old song and the story about Jesus being crucified on a hill outside of town makes for good storytelling and great singing but it's almost 100% contrary to what the Romans actually did. The idea of being one hill outside of town where all these events took place probably isn't very accurate, I'm sorry. What's more likely is that there was a landmark. There was something outside of town that had the appearance of a skull, a rock formation or something that was there in the landscape. When we were in Jerusalem, we had the chance to go to a place that they told us was called Golgotha. And when I actually saw it, which I didn't right away, I looked right at it and I didn't see it. I felt like I got kicked in the gut. I mean, was this really the place where Jesus was crucified? So I found an old picture to give you an idea of of what it looked like a long time ago. This is the city of Jerusalem. You can see it off to the right and behind it. And there's not a lot of development around it. But inside that circle, you can kind of make out two dark eyes. And below it is something of a nose. And if you look real carefully, there's almost a lower jaw there that you can see as well. It looks, if you're willing to see it that way, like it could very well be a skull. An ominous one at that. So when we got to this place in the city, I took this picture. You notice the hill is about the same height. The amount of rock face that's showing is about the same. What's changed is that a Jordanian bus company has decided that whatever the location is, it's just a good place to park and run their buses, such as life in Israel. Not much value to them, but to those of us who read it that way, there's a tremendous amount of value. So if you still don't see it, I stood here for a long time until I realized that was what I was looking at. There's a brow. There's two deep-set eyes. There's almost like the hollowed-out place for a cheekbone. The nose fell off. The ground shook a little bit, and the nose fell off a while ago. And there's a lower jaw. You can almost make the mark of skeletal teeth if you look carefully. And I wonder if that's Golgotha. One skull in the rock face. Might that be the place where all of this actually happened? Verse 18, verse 18. There they crucified him. He's not dead yet. The process is just beginning. 
and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Imagine the power that it would have if you had three men who were all guilty of standing up against Caesar, dying on a cross side by side on the way out of town. A lot of people would have come to see that. Would have certainly put a pause in anybody who had the idea of doing the same. And there they crucified Him. With those simple words, the human life of Jesus begins to end. I told you that I'm a fan of Shakespeare and in Shakespeare's King Lear, the 3,500th line, line 3,500, King Lear says this as his last statement before he's carried out. Look there, look there, he dies. And thus ends the life of King Lear to Shakespeare. Most of us don't want to accept the way that Jesus died. We don't want to think about it. We want to just think he died and move on. But there's so much more to it than that. We don't want to know how. And we absolutely do not want to have to admit why. Because when we admit the why and when we understand the how, we realize that we're a part of it. In Romans 5.8 it says that God showed His love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to clean up our act before Jesus gave His life. Jesus gave His life because we never would. That's a tough truth to accept, but it's a truth that God put into the world for us. Jesus died for us. He died so that we might live. Jesus died so you don't have to live the life that you've lived every day up until now. With Him, you can live an entirely new life where your sins are forgiven. You don't just have to try harder. So because of what Jesus went through and because the Bible tells us about it, let's spend a few troubling, gut-wrenching moments on the how. Let's talk about how Jesus was crucified. After the flogging and after the crown of thorns, they put the patibulum, the crossbeam, over His shoulders. Hot, bleeding, exhausted, no doubt dehydrated, And they make them walk through town for everyone to see, to carry out to the place that they're actually going to crucify Him. When they get there, that cross beam is laid on top of a much much longer timber. And those are secured together. And then the accused, the one who's had a death sentence pronounced, first of all would have their hands nailed to the cross so they wouldn't be a threat anymore to the soldiers. And so more than likely what historical evidence shows us is the nails didn't go through the hand because you know what? That has a chance of tearing. And the Bible says that not a bone was broken. It'd be a good chance of breaking a bone if you put a nail through the hand. Probably the nail went here where your radius and ulna meet but are separated just before they come into the wrist. Why would they do that? Because the Romans were so good at crucifying people and keeping them alive that the only thing that you'd have to hang on the cross without tearing it would be your skeletal system because they just destroyed the muscles. And so the nail would have gone through his wrist. The other thing that's there is tendons and you can just wrap yourself and feel that there's a whole bunch of nerves. The pain would be excruciating. We don't have another word for it than that but excruciating. And then they would take the feet and they would turn them out a little bit so they only had to use one nail and that nail would go through where the Achilles tendon meets your calf muscle. And they drive a nail through both of your legs, right on through, no bones broken. Again, the skeleton can hold the body up because the muscles won't anymore. 
And then they would take that cross with Jesus on it and they would lift it up with the help of a rope and they would drop it into the ground with no small amount of force to make sure that those nails set. And that was where he hung. And so the only way that a man could breathe on the cross was to either push up through the nail in your ankle or to pull up from the nails in your wrists to gather a breath and then to have to exhale that breath. And so it was no surprise because the muscles had already been torn apart that most men that died on a cross died of asphyxiation. They simply couldn't breathe anymore. Sometimes that took a day, sometimes two. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He identified Jesus correctly. And he granted in death the title that Jesus rightfully owned. What Pilate didn't know is that Jesus is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. St. Augustine said, Pilate indeed knew not only that Jesus was innocent, but who he was. And that was why Pilate put that inscription on the cross over his head. That Jesus was not a mere man, a mosquito that needed to be slapped by Rome. And so hanging over Jesus' head is this plaque that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate made sure that even in his death, Jesus would be acknowledged for who he really was. Verse 20, many of the Jews, his own people, read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Aramaic was the original language that Jesus would have spoke naturally. But Pilate wrote it in three languages. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Why? so that everyone that passed by the place that Jesus was hanging on the cross would be able to read and to know what that inscription said in their own language. Not get lost in translation. He wanted everyone to know who that man was. Verse 21, So the chief priests of the Jews, the religious leaders, said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Even in Jesus' death, the Jews are trying to push Pilate around and insisted on denying the divinity of Jesus Christ. They insisted that Jesus' claim was His own and that He had no right to it, rather than that it was a title given to Him by wrong, by God. And yet, how wrong were those Jewish leaders? Pilate understood, but they didn't. And so he countered in verse 22... Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. There would be no further debate. The discussion was over. What Pilate didn't know was that that simple sign that he had carved to hang on that cross would stand the test of time for all eternity. Why? Because Jesus of Nazareth indeed was the King of the Jews and the Savior of our souls and the very Son of God. And that was who they hung on the cross outside of Jerusalem that day. I've used the word excruciating a few times. I've done it quite intentionally. 
trying to come up with what word in the English language possibly gets across the point of the incredible amount of pain that Jesus would have gone through. And the word is excruciating. It comes out of a Latin word, crucifigere, to fasten to a crux. Do you know what excruciating literally means? Excruciating. The word that you use to describe when you get a cut or you bang your toe on the table. An emotion that you don't know what to do with. The word excruciating means out of crucifixion. The word that we use to describe stuff that's so simple that isn't excruciating at all literally means out of crucifixion. Because for a thousand years, the Roman cross meant one thing and one thing only. It meant death. Excruciating. Out of crucifixion. Because there was no end to crucifixion other than death. It didn't matter how much pain. As unbearable as it was, the only way out was to breathe your last. Because the cross meant death. So maybe you're not aware of this, but I want you to think about it for a moment. That cross that you wear from your ears or have on a chain around your neck. Maybe it's the cross that you have on a tattoo on your body. It means one thing and one thing only. It means death. Plain and simple. That's what a cross means. It's literally a symbol of nothing more and nothing less than death. But so is a sword. A hangman's noose, an electric chair, a bomb. We don't wear those as jewelry. They're all instruments of death every bit as much of a cross, as a cross is. I've never seen anybody wear one of those. Why? Because even though we get the word excruciating out of the crucifixion of Jesus on a cross, there's comfort in that cross, isn't there? There's comfort in that cross, not because of what He went through, but because of the result of it. None of those other things are comforting to us. They remind us of people that we don't want to have to think about. Reminds us of ways of dying that we don't want to be a part of. They're not jewelry because they're not comforting. In, in fact, they remind us of things we don't want to think about just as much as a cross does if we stop and think about it. And yet the cross brings us comfort. Those crosses we wear were anything but comfortable for Jesus. They're a reminder of the excruciating death that Jesus died on the cross at Golgotha. Why? For you. Because He loves you that much. And yet for so many people, the, the cross is ornamentation without meaning. It's something that is worn without ever being thought about. And we think about the word excruciating. That's in our language as a way of describing what the men who died on crosses went through. Excruciating. Out of crucifixion. So what's so powerful about the way that Jesus died is that the Jews of the Old Testament understood it. The Jews of Jesus' day. This wasn't the first time that they had seen this. The 
The Romans had been executing people with crosses for hundreds of years. They were very well aware. The Jewish people knew that it was a punishment fit for a crime that was deserving of death. But they also know that it was brutal, that it was humiliating. They also knew that the crucified man carried with him an understanding that he was cursed. Why else would he be hanging on a cross? Actually, they go on in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and that individual is cursed by God. It says this in Deuteronomy 21.3. His body, a man hanging on a cross or hanging from a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. They used to call it hanging from a cross. A hanged man is cursed by God. Well, that sounds pretty powerful to us. You see, a... Those words, a hanged man is cursed by God, it's why they were in such a hurry to get Jesus down from the cross. See, they didn't want to interrupt their religious celebration. They needed Him down by, by the time the sun set on Sabbath. That passage, cursed by God, is from the Old Testament of your Bible. It's from the Scriptures that Jesus knew. There's a lot of discussion and disagreement and Spiritual wrangling that happens over what exactly happened during the crucifixion. Here's what happened. Jesus died for your sins. might make you feel better to get all tied up in knots going into great depth on other details of it, but you know what? You're going to miss the point. I'm not going to deal with that today. I'm not going to worry about it one bit. What we're going to highlight is simply this. Death on the cross by crucifixion was painful and it was agonizing beyond description or understanding. It was excruciating. And Jesus knew what was happening. Jesus knew what was at stake. See, we know God promises us that His Word is unchanging. God does not change, not yesterday, today, or forever. Which meant that Jesus knew that He became a curse before God. Jesus knew what was happening. He knew He became a curse before God for our sin. So what was the price for Jesus? Simply this. Every man, woman, and child who's ever lived the earth. That's a lot. Every one of us sins a lot. When Jesus hung on that cross, He bore the full weight of all of that sin the sin of every man, woman, and child in history who accepts Him as their Savior, He took that weight on His shoulders. So great was all of that sin that only death could pay its price before our Creator God. And Jesus knew that in order to do that, He too would be cursed. Not forever, not eternally. The Bible is very clear about that. Jesus understood what He was doing. And the reason that we don't talk about it in church is because He did it for us. As we journey closer to Resurrection Sunday this year, it will be a celebration here. We will make sure of that. Part of the reason that we're doing the work of going through these messages and these passages is because I just don't want you to jump past your sin straight to the forgiveness that we celebrate that day. Because that road for Jesus was paved with blood and pain and humiliation and death. 
it seems to me that the very least that we can do in our overbooked, overworked, overbusy lives is to slow down a little bit and think about why Jesus made that journey for us. He didn't do it for the person sitting next to you all alone. It wasn't because of their horrible sin. It was because of yours and because of mine. That's why Jesus hung on that cross. He loved you that much. And so, again, I'm going to end this message the way I've ended most of them lately. What will you do with love like that? What will you do with Jesus who loved you so much that He didn't even save His own life? He gave it up for you. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Kings, King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of your soul, who went to the cross to die for your sins so you don't have to die in your sins? What will you do with Him? What will you do with love like that? Let's pray. God, this is tough stuff. But we don't have to tell you that because your son went through it and you watched. We can't help but think, well, if we didn't sin, Jesus wouldn't have to die. But you know what? We don't understand. We don't know life without sin. We sin every day. And Jesus chose to die for us. And God, we've got to ask for your forgiveness. I do as a pastor. We do as churches. We have to ask for your forgiveness as Christians who pass over these verses quickly to get to the celebration of Resurrection Sunday. God, we have to ask for your forgiveness because it's easier not to think about the price that Jesus paid. It's easier not to think about how excruciating His death was. And yet, God, He willingly chose to do that because He loves us that much, because You love us that much. The least that we can do, God, is to slow down and try in some way to begin to comprehend and to understand. And while the right words fail us, all we can do is to say thank You. Thank You for loving us that much. Thank You for Jesus, for His death on the cross, that we do not have to pay the price of our sins, and that is to die in our sins. But that because of Him, we can be forgiven. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Uh, with that, this is the part where I usually leave you with a challenge and say, here's what you can think about as you, as you go out for the week. Here's my challenge. You ready for this? Come back next Sunday. And I realize that's a challenge because this isn't fun stuff, these messages. And then come back the Sunday after that. Because Jesus died for your sins so that you didn't have to die in them. We're going to spend three weeks talking about what that really means. And if you'll come for those three Sundays, you'll have an understanding of the crucifixion like you've never had before. And then the following Sunday when we come for Resurrection Sunday and we celebrate, it'll be a celebration like you've never ever had before because you're going to understand the price that Jesus paid and that He really did truly die and that God really did truly raise Him from the grave. And that is what we'll celebrate Resurrection Sunday.